Good evening to you. My name is Josh Cannon. Over the course of doing this podcast, I have been able through one way or another to reach out to people who have appeared or worked on the show Unsolved Mysteries. Some of our listeners already know this and have enjoyed the previous full episodes me and Mike have done, where I intersperse the interview into the usually hour and 45 minute long podcast. I felt, though, like these interviews are so good and so rare that I was able to talk to somebody who appeared on Unsolved Mysteries that they deserve their own place in our podcast catalog. So this is a series of just the interviews that I did with the people who lived through the murders, hauntings, conspiracy, and even someone who worked on the set of Unsolved Mysteries. I apologize in advance for the varying audio quality in each of these interviews. Most of the people I interviewed could only talk over the phone, so I did the best with what I had. For this interview, I was also joined by Mike, which is rare. Usually, I'm left handling the interviews for whatever reason. We talk with one of the directors of cinematography for Unsolved Mysteries, Kevin O'Brien. This was an awesome behind-the-scenes look at the show, and we are so thankful that Kevin chatted with us. If you go and watch the Amazon Prime or Hulu reissues of Unsolved Mysteries, you can still see Kevin's name in the end credits. How cool is that? Here's that interview. Well, uh, thank you for um, commenting on the video and, um, you know, responding to me and all that. Um, We were super excited when we, you know, heard about you being the director of uh, photography for... 300 plus episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. That's crazy. Well, 300, 300 stories. So, <clears throat> okay. I don't think there were 300 episodes, but 300 stories. So, they're usually like three or four stories in an episode. That's, right. still, that's still a lot of segments. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah. So, it was a great show, I have to say. So, how it was did a lot you, of fun um, to work on. How did you get that opportunity to work on that show? Well, um, I had Terry Muir, who's the one of the two uh, producers of the show. Um, I had worked with her at a company called Dave Bell Associates, which was the first place I worked when I got out of school. And um, so we had worked together on a show called On Campus where she was producing and I was shooting and then moved on to, we both were doing uh, various things at the company. And they got this... um, I think it all spun off. They got this special to do called Missing. And um, NBC liked it. And they said, oh, let's do a... They were were trying to figure out what to do around it. And so they did a kind of pilot for Unsolved Mysteries. And um, I wasn't involved with the first pilot. I was on something else. And then... um, Because we were both... I, I had left the company by then and I was freelance. Um, and then the, th- I think it was the third special, and I can't remember if that one was still hosted by Carl Malden. I know Carl Malden did, uh, was originally going to be the host, I think, and then he had something else going on, and so he couldn't. And at some point, Robert Stack stepped in, which of course was what, you know, that's where it all began. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the third special I was where I started. I, that was uh, 1986, and so I, I worked on the show from then till it was over. So it was uh, that's how I got involved. Was I had, I'd worked with Terry, the producer, um, you know, some years earlier, and for on various projects. That's awesome. So. Um me and Mike have kind of assembled some questions for you. Um, I think Mike uh, Mike's a big movie guy. He has, I think, he yeah, has, he has better yeah. questions. He has better <laughs> questions than I do. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I got one right here. Uh, this is about one of six. But uh, how about uh, walk us through a day on the shoot for the show? Uh, what was it like? What were the challenges, if any? Well, the biggest challenge for the show was. In the beginning, we would go to all the real places to do the story. So if the story was in, um, you know, Dearborn, Michigan, that's where we'd shoot it. And we'd try and do all the interviews there and do all the recreations there. And sometimes there were multiple locations, so um, you couldn't always do that. But, you know, in, in the early years, everything was done on location in the actual places. 
And so there was a lot of wrangling to do to set that up. And uh, also, we were shooting film, which has its own complications. Um, and so a lot of times, there was a lot of logistics of interacting with the town and getting the places we need to shoot and finding the people and sometimes convincing the people to be interviewed. Um, so frequently we would do when we could, we'd do all the interviews and then do the recreations. So we knew what the interview said. I mean, they knew the story ahead of time, but it, you know, you never know what people are really going to say. And a lot of times we would, um, get to a location, we'd start doing a recreation if we didn't, where sometimes we didn't have an interview with somebody and we'd realize it couldn't have happened this way. When you go to set up the recreation, you realize it couldn't have happened the way they said it happened. <laughs> so that, that was a dilemma. <laughs> and um, sometimes uh, the biggest challenges were, um, it was, you know, it was a kind of a decent sized machine of, all these different things that had to happen with people for the recreations doing art and um, props and stuff, but all in the real places. So they didn't have access to the kind of, you know, Hollywood supplies you usually have. So they had to be creative. I remember our um, art director, Billy Jett, once we needed to do, we were doing a story about a co tunnel of cocaine underneath the border with Mexico. In, oh, uh, I love that that's one. A that's a great yeah. story. Okay. So in that story, there's a scene where, the uh, drug dealer on the Mexican side is in his home and they're playing pool and the pool table lifts up on a hydraulic lift and that's where the tunnel is. And what we did is we found a gas station that wasn't being used that had a lift and Billy Jet built a set around that to make it look like a living room. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Awesome. I love so that ingenuity. That's there really was a cool. lot of MacGyver stuff like that where you just, you don't, you know, you just got to figure out something to do. Um, we had a story about this woman with a past life kind of, uh, flashback memories of this guy who was a sailor on a ship in World yeah. War II. And the story was in Arizona, but there was some scenes in Hawaii and we weren't at that point. It was like, well, we're not flying to Hawaii for those scenes. So our art director got all these tropical plants and we found this condo complex that had a fake lake with a wave machine. And so we basically built the set of all these, you know, tropical flowers at the edge of this condo complex in Arizona. So we shot Arizona for Hawaii and I just, I couldn't believe it could be done. But then I was like, well, okay, we did it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of things like that. And, um, you know, it was, that was the, for me, it was one of the better parts of the show is going to the real places, you know, seeing the real people and, you know, interacting with the people in the town um, we had one in Texas where, uh, it was a period piece and they, they closed down, it was a small town. I can't remember the town now, but they, they closed down the entire downtown section of town and everyone brought their own period costumes and wore them to be extras. And, you know, so it, the response of the public in America was amazing. These towns would just welcome us, you know, mostly with open arms. There were occasions where, the town was run by somebody who we thought was going to go to jail for the rest of their life, and then they weren't so welcoming. But, <laughs> 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 but that's rare. <laughs> a lot of times, um, I was surprised at the number of times that there were stories where people in town were afraid to talk. But when we came, they felt there was some protection in that. And so um, things would happen. Cases would get solved just because people felt like oh well now it's going to be on tv and so i can talk and i won't be the only one and they won't just you know put me in a ditch somewhere but we did a story in the arizona desert about this real estate guy who got involved with drug dealers somehow i think he was i don't know if he was their accountant or something he was an accountant and um these guys became unhappy with him because he figured out that there was all this money laundering going on. All this real estate was being bought with stolen money. And so they took him out of the desert and they painted LSD on the back of his throat and left him there naked. And when we were out there, we we're like, well, are they going to do something to us? And there was, yeah. 
there was times like that that we did the Unabomber story and we were doing recreations and um, the scene was that there was this uh, bag left at the back door of this business. And so we, and, and the FBI had told us like, well, we have, we have the info. We think maybe the Unabomber's in town. And so, oh, no. so just keep an eye out. And we were like, so we were freaked out. And so, you know, there's a, grocery bag by the back of the thing. We're like, wait, don't touch it. Who put that there? Is that ours? (laughs) Freak ourselves out. Sometimes the ghost stories would be like that too. You kind of get to the point where you're like, okay, I don't want to know anymore here. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of the ghost stories, like what was it like shooting some of those uh, unexplained unknown sort of segments? Because I know those are very effects orientated. So there were probably a lot of different shots where you didn't have the effects yet. So you had to kind of work with what was there. Yeah, they were technically more complicated because you'd have to, um, sometimes we'd have to put a, a, you know, like a green screen or a blue screen in, or we'd have to put marks where something was going to be put in afterwards. And so, you know, you have people reacting to nothing. And of course, one of the other challenges of those days of shooting in the real places was actors. I mean, you just don't have a pool of actors. And so a lot of times we're using amateurs and so then it's doubly hard if they're trying to react to nothing <laughs> something's going to be added later so those are challenges they're also interesting and you, and you kind of know like well most ghost stories won't get solved because you know you're not going to prove anything you, yeah you'll see what you see and we had some interesting experiences we did the billy the kid story and we were shooting this hotel in new mexico I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember what the name of the town was. But uh, it was this hotel where supposedly Billy the Kid died. Where He got shot. He holed up in this hotel, but the lead and the bullets poisoned him, and eventually he died. Uh, and they said, oh, this hotel is haunted by all kinds of people, blah, 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 blah. So uh, I had this room that was kind of in the middle of the top floor. And um, I went to go set up this bathroom we're going to shoot a scene in the bathroom with this because it was partly about the um this woman who supposedly haunted the hotel i can't remember her backstory anymore but um so i'm getting this bathroom set up and all the windows are closed and um i remember right it was kind of winter so it wasn't very warm out and all of a sudden the bathroom just smells completely like flowers like there's a million you know bunches of flowers in the bathroom. So I mm. come out and I tell these guys in the hotel guys like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. Oh wow. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so I go to bed in this in this room. I turn up the light. <laughs> the door's locked. I wake up a couple hours later, lights on. I get up, I turn off the light, door's still locked. I go back to bed. I wake up a couple hours later, the light's on. And I'm just like, okay, so the door's locked. <laughs> I'm in bed. The light keeps being on. So, you know, you don't know what to think of it sometimes, but it was always interesting. So yeah. when you're when your crew when when you guys are out doing those kind of like paranormal segments, um mm-hmm. did did you experience a lot of what the story was talking about as far as like if they're talking about a bunch of like windows opening and closing a bunch of that paranormal kind of activity did the crew usually experience that or or maybe not no it was unusual because you know one of the things they say is that when there's a lot of people around a lot of activity it stuff tends not to happen um it usually happens when things are quiet or there you know there's only a few people around because i don't know they say like just all that activity just kind of disturbs things um so we didn't frequently see stuff. And sometimes we had to use places that weren't the actual place in order to, you know, yeah. do a recreation. So I don't, yeah. I don't know if you were involved in the uh, Tallman house segment, but I know for that one, they shot it in the, in the actual house, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, I think that was, where was it? Do you remember? Uh, it was in Wisconsin. Um, I, it wasn't Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. I think it was kind of in that area. Um, it's one of the earlier segments. Um, it was Alan Tallman. I think I think they might have changed his name for the segment or whatever. But uh, that that they actually shot the recreation in in the actual house, and they attributed the 
paranormal on the show they were attributing the paranormal activity to some bunk bed they were saying once the bunk bed was purchased then all this weird stuff started happening oh yeah i don't think i was on that one there were basically three or four of us um you know working on the show as dps and usually at least two at the same time in different places okay Cool. Mike, Mike, go into your well of questions for another one. Okay, yeah. I, I got I got another one that's sort of related to this sort of paranormal thing. Just one more. Like, what was your favorite sort of paranormal episode that you worked on or segment? Oh, uh, that's easy. It was called Hudson Valley UFO. Oh, great one. And uh, the thing that was different about that one is so many people saw the same thing in a continuous time frame across different um, towns as this thing passed over. And so you had all kinds of police department. There was recorded chatter of the police describing what they saw. So there was such a trail of evidence there that you don't usually get. And of course, you know, the problem is you don't have the evidence you really need, which is the, you know, the crashed spaceship or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I remember vividly that one that, um, one of our key interviews was a guy who was an IBM executive and he watched this thing go over his house and all this stuff. And when he talked about it, it kind of ruined his life because people are like, Oh, you're crazy. And even though all these different people in police departments and everything saw it and it was documented the path of this. So it wasn't like, you know, he, he's the only guy. And, um, so that was a really strong one to me because there's so many witnesses and the description was all, you know, pretty much the same of this giant, you know, thing going overhead. Um, that, that, was, that was the strongest one we did, I think. The other really interesting one to me was um, Socorro, New Mexico, about, um, you know, crashed alien spaceship at the secret facility, Area 51. And we interviewed this guy who, of course, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stories you never know, but, but we interviewed this guy who had been working for an undertaker in town. And he, at the time, I think he was like 16 years old. So I think he was still in high school. And the undertaker sent him to the Area 51 to, I forget, he, they just said, go there and pick up a body or something. And so he went there, and as he was going down the hallway, he looked and he and he saw this alien, you know, corpse being operated on. <laughs> and he he basically said that he had never never told anyone this story because they would just say he was crazy, but he was going to die, and he just wanted to tell the story before he died. Wow. So. You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of value to him making that up because no. he's not like, I'm going to be famous. He's like, I'm going to be dead. So, um, and his description was quite extensive. Um, I think in that same segment, we had the supposed autopsy footage that appeared around that time, which we determined was completely bogus. One of our other camera operators, uh, Kenji Luster, who um, is a very techie guy, he looks at it and he said, well, there's a continuous shot that's too long for the roll of film that fits into the camera they said it came from. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, And there were other things there too, but he was like, so that makes that impossible. Um, but the story to me, that interview was really strong because it's like, well, what's the motivation for him to make this up? You know, he's going to be dead. He, he's, he hasn't told anybody. And he'll probably be dead before the show airs, so it's not like, you know, you just wonder, like, well, uh, why would he, why would he do it if it didn't happen? I wonder so, if that, that autopsy video that you're talking about. I wonder if that's that famous one that kind of broke out that was in black yeah. and white. Where yes, it is. Oh, okay. it, was, it was bogus. Yeah, was, the one that they had a special on uh, Fox, yeah. hosted yeah. by Randall Frakes. He's like mm -hmm. alien autopsy, fact or fiction? Like it's fiction. Yeah, fiction. <laughs> it, it looked <laughs> like really you guys good, figured though. that out before it even aired, right? I guess like you saw it probably before they aired it on TV and stuff. Well, before like that the special, yeah, it, it, bits and pieces of it had appeared, mm -hmm. but before the special aired for sure. I think the special came later. 
Um, that was one of the rare times when we interacted with, you know, controversial stuff like, you know, that, that new evidence of something. Although a lot of times our story would be driven by something new that came out. It'd be a book or something new, Mm -hmm. new fact would come out or something. Yeah. But I mean, it was amazing to me. The show, the first story that I did, I think was about this guy, John Burns, who, um, had an affair with this woman. Um, her husband found out this was in Michigan somewhere. And, um, had an affair with this woman. Her husband found out. Uh, he came and shot the husband. He came to her house and shot the husband and then disappeared. And they never found him. And when we did the story, it was 17 years old. And um, the night that the story aired, and this was, like I said, this was the first story that I did, I think. The night the story aired, some guy called and said, oh, I know that guy. He's over in this, you know, retirement home. And so the police went and he said, oh, well, I've been, you know, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> I was got tired, of looking over, got tired of looking over my shoulder. <laughs> so that was when I realized the power of the show to actually solve cases. I was like, I mean, this is a 17-year-old dead cold case and, you know, gets solved in you know, within an hour of the show airing. So, of course, because of that, most of the police departments in the country just loved us. I mean, they would bend over backwards for us because we would solve cases for them. And um, so that was a great thing because it just meant we had so much cooperation and a lot of small towns, you know, if you have the chief of police on your side and the mayor, everybody else is just like, well, what could we do? You know, so... um, so it was great that way, and I think it, it it's it's great to work on a show that has some value beyond its entertainment. And I think the show did a lot of good in that way. I mean, sure, I mean it was made to be entertainment and make money, but at the same time, it solved crimes. The some of the most affecting ones are people who found their lost family members through the mm-hmm. show. They were just yeah. so I mean, their whole lives, people who were adopted and found their real parents or found their siblings. And, um, you know, people who were in Vietnam with somebody they never got to thank, all those kind of stories. I mean, yeah. uh, the people were so happy when they, you know, got closure on things. And even stories where the ending was sad. I remember we did this one in Oregon about this guy who went out fishing and he disappeared. And they never found him. And so uh, we went up to um, use this underwater robot submarine to try and find the, sh- the boat. And we went out, of course, ironically, we went out and um, it was the the port was Port Orford in Oregon. They called it Port Awful because the weather was so frequently terrible. And we went out and there was a storm and it was like 30 foot waves and Whoa. we were out there for 12 hours. We couldn't, they couldn't put the submarine in. It was hopeless because it would just be destroyed and so it was just kind of a ride to nowhere. Everybody was, everybody was sick as a dog. But they said they had hooked um, they had hooked something right near where the bay let out. And so um, eventually they went back to check that out, and that was the boat, and they found the boat. Um, so, But we were out there with the guy's brother who had – it was so cartoon. We're out there, you know, in the 30-foot waves, six seconds apart. The boat is just, you know, all over the place. And the guy, and we're all, you know, seasick. And this his, this fisherman, his brother's out there, and he's got a wooden leg. All he needed was a parrot. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> and an iPad. And, he, yeah. and, he's, sit, and he, he's sitting there eating a candy bar. And we're like, oh, my God. We're like, Lauren, what do you do on a day like this? He said, oh, I'd never go out on a day like this. <laughs> <laughs> we were just like, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. So I also was wondering, uh, how did they, do you know how they did some of these like practical and like visual effects for the show, like for the more complex sort of UFO scenes and ghost well, yeah, stuff? A good example is Hudson Valley UFO. We, um, we 
what would happen is we would shoot 16 millimeter film for most of the show. But if we had stuff that had effects, we would sometimes shoot 35 millimeters so that they had more to work with in the effects afterwards so that it would match better when they came back for the other footage. Um, so in that case, we got this giant crane. I think it was like a 70 foot crane. And they built the, my gaffer, Kurt Peppery, they got this truss, and so they built this truss into a triangle because people had described the ship as a kind of triangle and just put a bunch of lights around the triangle and then left the middle part empty. So when we shot it, we were shooting um, the ship, and it was just a triangle with a bunch of lights. But, of course, in the middle, you don't see much because the lights kind of you know flare out. And then the lights would, were also lighting things on the ground, so you didn't have to go back and do all the effects of the effect of that ship light on the ground and then they added the details of the ship in special effects oh so was that cgi or was that uh yes like okay it was early cgi so it was limited what we could do with the budget in those days with cgi it was kind of yeah yeah there were some of them that were you know definitely early cg you know but uh it adds to the charm of the show for me um yeah it's kind of retro now (laughs) yeah (laughs) So, uh, speaking of film, uh, what are the differences between shooting a TV show like Unsolved Mysteries versus a feature film like The Strangeness? Ah, okay. Uh, well, the television show has all kinds of um, limits imposed by um, the style of the show and the story you're doing. If you're doing a feature, essentially you're restricted by the script, but you're writing the script, so you kind of create your own restrictions. And then the budget has its own effect. But um, the show, you're, it's challenging because you have a lot of different people doing stories in a lot of different places with a, a, a million variables, but it needs to all fit together as if it's part of the same thing. And when you're doing a feature, you don't have that. You usually have one DP who's shooting everything and one director and um, so on the, on the Unsolved Mysteries, you have multiple DPs and multiple directors and all kinds of different stories. So it's a challenge to make all that meld together. So the style of the show very much defines some of what you're doing when you're out there. You kind of know, um, you know, the, the sort of landscape that you're in because the show has its style, has a pretty good groove. So... That's the biggest difference. And then, uh, you know, in a feature, you're shooting pieces of the same story over time. And with Unsolved, we shoot a lot of different stories. And so usually a story would shoot not more than over a week, period of a week, um, which is a lot these days. They'd never do that long. But um, so you're constantly moving from one story to the next. So one of the challenges is keeping the story straight figuring out, okay, wait, then this is for next week's story. Because <laughs> sometimes we'd go on a trip for two or three weeks and do, you know, three or even four stories, just one after the other. And it can be hard to keep it all straight. Yeah. Um, I got to say, you guys made it look easy. And it sounds like to me that it wasn't. So would you say it was harder to shoot for Unsolved Mysteries than it was for a feature film? No, I think one of the nice things about Unsolved is then you're working with a crew that you know generally, and you have all, you you know, we had good support, we had great people helping us, um, and then there'd be local people who would fill in positions, but you've got a team that's been working together, uh, so it really, that that made it easier that you just, my gaffer, Kurt Pepper, and I, sometimes I'd just look at him and I wouldn't say anything, he'd know what I'm thinking about. I'd nod my head or I'd shake my head, no. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he'd do something. So, you know, you get the kind of relationship where you're just, you're working with a great team and that kind of support um, just, you know, makes every day, you know, it, that, you know, it's enjoyable. And um, on a feature, it takes a while to develop the crew and the groove for the show. So that was one of the advantages we have of the show. So I think in the end, I mean, the, the show was easier because you have so many already predetermined pieces in place when you start a story. Yeah. Um, speaking of the show, uh, what was it like working with Robert Stack? 
Robert Stack is just one of the greatest people on the face of the earth. <laughs> that's so, all I can tell I'm you. I'm so glad to hear that. That's what I always figured. I, that, that's what I always thought, too. It's really And nice politically, to we were from opposite ends of the spectrum. But, you know, it was just those... He was from that era when, you know, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill used to go have lunch together and talk about stuff. And he was just a great guy. He was incredibly funny, which you wouldn't really... Because uh, I didn't... There was a DP who usually did the host stuff. And I only filled in when there was, you know, a conflict, somebody couldn't do it. So I didn't do the host all the time. But whenever I did, I just, uh, it took me a while to realize how funny Robert Stack was because he would be standing there and you're setting up or lighting or whatever. And he's doing a monologue. And unless you're within three feet of him, you won't hear it. He's just doing it to kind of entertain himself. And it's hysterical. So he just was, he was really an amazing person. He was fluent in French. He, he, he was a great guy. And he had, I mean, you know, the hard part for Unsolved is that nobody's ever going to be able to replace Robert Stack. No, he's irreplaceable. They tried <laughs> he to was do it just, with Dennis Farina. It didn't work. <laughs> he was the, now, that doesn't mean Unsolved couldn't start up again and, and, you know, succeed. It's just that he had an amazing, unique set of things going for him. One was that he had a fan base of people who were a little older who already knew who he was. Um. And then by doing the show, he generated a whole new generation of people who, you know, were crazy about him. So, you know, he had this kind of appeal across the generations and across different genres. You know, he he had this, um, you know, that sort of unsolved mystery, uh, scary narrator guy persona. But at the same time, he'd done comedy. He'd done everything. So he was great. Actually, he just, you know, what can I say? Yeah. Yeah, Do you remember any of the funny things that he said? Do you remember any of that stuff? You know, it's funny. It all just goes by. I don't. I don't immediately come to one. I I remember a funny thing that happened while we were getting ready to shoot him once. We had we were getting setting up this dolly shot, and it was a long, long dolly shot, uh, probably twenty five or thirty feet with one of those Fisher dollies, you know, big heavy dolly. And the in order to get the shot, the track. The, the ground went way down on one side. And so the, it was way built up like five or six feet above the ground on one end. And they were rehearsing the shot and it's I, something happened. Somebody was looking like, Oh, what's that? And then they forgot the end of the track and the dolly started to go off the end of the track. Oh, no. <laughs> and, and stack was like, Hey, <laughs> <laughs> but he was endlessly had stories. Um, he, he, I think he was telling me stories about being in France. I want to say, is it possible in the twenties, or maybe it was his when he was in his twenties, on the streets doing, you know, stuff. Just, yeah, he, he had he had quite a life. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, that's one interesting thing that we found from uh, doing this podcast because, like, obviously, me and Mike are we're we're younger. You know, I'm we're both twenty eight. I think he's twenty seven or whatever. And you know, our generation, we grew up as kids. You know, almost in diapers, watching Unsolved Mysteries, usually with a grandparent or a parent mm-hmm. or something like that. And um, you know, even from a young age, I recognize that this show stood out amongst the other shows at that time because of the quality of the show and because of Robert Stack and, you know, his quote unquote creepy voice and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, I also love the stories and we found since doing this podcast that most of our fan base is around our age, if not maybe a little bit older. And it's kind of the same thing. It's like we grew up watching this show as kids. And now that we're adults, like we, it, it, it we want to revisit it and and we want to we want more of it so it thrilled us to hear yeah. that they're bringing it back to Amazon Prime especially the stack episodes because honestly right the originals yeah honestly the Farina ones it, it just it 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 took the heart of the show and it kind of gutted it to me because I mean you know you got the, they gutted the music the original music which was brilliant the uh, composer who did the original music for the show and they yeah no I, your piece on that I thought was right on it and it made me laugh and it was all Thank on you. target <laughs> nothing was as good as the original and and i know that there's a desire to bring it back in its original form of course i don't know stack but um 
So, so that's a good thing. I'm, now, here's a question for you. I'm curious. I'm always curious because I ask people this. How old were you when your parents decided that you were old enough to watch Unsolved Mysteries? Now, for me, <laughs> for me, it was one of those things to where my my mom's mom, who lived in Massachusetts, she would come down and visit, and and it was rare that she would visit. So when she would visit, it was kind of like she could do whatever she wanted, and my you know my m- mom wouldn't really tell her, hey, you know, my son probably shouldn't be watching this show. So I was like seven. <laughs> I was like seven. Okay. I was like seven or eight years old. And my grandma, that was her favorite show, so she'd put that show on, and I, I was just allowed to watch it with her. Um, so, like that show. Because I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I met a lot of people who who watched it starting when they were like eight or nine, and I was a little surprised, but um, you know. I know you wouldn't think that it would be a show that would be appropriate for a kid, and and it wasn't appropriate for me because I got nightmares from that show for a long time afterward. <laughs> okay. But that was part of the charm, that- though. I was going to say that didn't deter you from being fond of it. Yeah, no, it didn't. It was kind of like one of those things that it uh, it, it made it more inter- it made me seek it out, you know, because I've said this before and I'll say it again. You know, if I was just watching Unsolved Mysteries for nostalgia value, there's a lot of really crappy shows out that I would still be watching from that era. You know, if I'm just a right, nostalgia, right, yeah. you know, if I'm just a nostalgia fiend. But no, it's mm-hmm. not just nostalgia. It's the fact that. This was a quality show, and even from a young age, I, I recognize that. You know, especially a lot. Of the UFO segments are my personal favorites, um, with the fraud segments being a close second place. So, yeah, I mean, um, I they they released this ultimate box set a while back, and um, I, I bought that up, and I've I've watched those discs so many times that there's scratches on them at this point. But yeah, I mean, I just I just really. Uh, thought it was a great show, and uh, the Farina when it, episodes when it came out, I was excited because I was like, "Oh, they're bringing it back, they're revamping it." And then I see the Farina, what they did with the show, where they cut everything up and they added new graphics on the screen to make it look more hip and appeal to the younger people. I'm like, "Oh man, they they gutted this show. It's nothing." They and I think the show was at the really sort of hostage of that network and what they wanted to do with it. Yeah, um, I love the bit in your piece where you say, you know, as soon as it was done being television for women, it was television for men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is ironic. That is so which ironic. just goes to show that you know the thing about Unsolved was that it was it had such a wide audience. And ironically, I think in in a sense, all the shows that came after, or at least most of the shows that came after Unsolved, trying to do the same thing, didn't do it as well. And part of that is they they didn't have the money because when Unsolved was at its peak television was also kind of at its peak. And so, um, you know, they had a budget you just don't get anymore. And um, it was interesting the show managed to go quite a long ways as, as you know, the general amount of television audience dwindled and the, and the budget was cut back some. But other shows, you know, they're just starting at a disadvantage because they didn't have stack and they didn't have the budget and they didn't have the kind of... You know, in, in a lot of ways, Ensemble was really made like a bunch of little features with art directors and going to the real place and all this stuff. I mean, a lot of logistics and, and support and stuff. And at the end, the budget was, had to be cut because not as many people were watching and we shot more stuff all around Los Angeles. But still, it just had more resources, I think, than a lot of these other shows. And you know, Terry and John, the people behind the show were smart cookies and they, you know, they made a good show. Now, yeah, I-, I mean, the only competition I can think of that could come close is America's Most Wanted. But America's Most Wanted definitely did not have the same budget because it was a Fox no. show. And you can tell when you watch the because they covered similar cases. Uh, sometimes the exact same cases as Unsolved Mysteries did. And it, yeah. I always find it kind of funny to watch them back to back and kind of to compare yeah. them. And <laughs> yeah. like the reenactments on, on America's Most Wanted have not held up well. I remember watching that as a kid with my dad. And uh, yeah, as an adult, don't they don't hold up nearly as well as some of the reenactments for, for uh, most of the reenactments for Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, and that show, I mean, the show was successful in that they did, you know, they had the same sort of thing where they could they could solve crimes but that's all they had they had no other kind of stories and it's still the show went on for, i don't know is it still on it went on forever and ever 
They canceled they, it, and it, it uh, John Walsh has a new show called The Hunt on CNN, yeah, which has right. actually better. It's got better habits. resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, they just didn't have the money to do the kind of things that we did. And I actually worked on one or two of those. Um, but it was always, you felt like, Hmm, well, they're, they're really struggling in terms of not the same, right? Not the same. Yeah. (laughs) Not at all. One thing, um, when I was talking to Don Devereaux, did you, I mean, you, you worked on the Charles Morgan case. That was the guy who had his tongue painted with LSD. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know about Don Devereaux, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah, uh, when I ha- when I had a conversation with him, he was telling me about how when Unsolved Mysteries went over to CBS, all of a sudden, um, I guess the uh, powers that be who were over John and Terry's head, they were really wanting to skew younger. So all the cases had to be younger, all the victims had to be younger. Everyone they wanted a young try to get a younger audience. Now, did you have any experiences with those issues or challenges with that? Uh, well, not really, because you know, by the time I do it, the story's already formed, and we're just trying to tell it. I do remember them that the word was they they wanted to capture a younger audience. Who knew that the way they would do that is by getting the generation that was n- not old enough to vote yet <laughs> to <Yeah. laughs> like the show. But ironically, put on some show that replaced Unsolved Mysteries with Ice T in it, and yeah. it just tanked. So. <laughs> I didn't even money. know what show was that. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I forget what it was even now. I didn't watch it. Was it like a spinoff of uh, the uh, Law and Order thing or something? Because <laughs> I know yeah. he was on the Law and Order show later. Um, the, then it went to Lifetime, and was the budget slashed? Then is that when the budget was cut down? Was that on Lifetime? I don't think any original shows were made for Lifetime. Yeah, Lifetime just—they just did oh, okay. reruns. It was syndicated on Lifetime. I thought there and, was a couple seasons. I, I read somewhere where like see, some of the later seasons were Lifetime, and then they went to Spike. I could be wrong. No, I think mm, the, it's, the last seasons think so. were on CBS, yeah. and then yeah. and Lifetime oh, okay. syndicated it. Um, but Lifetime did breathe a new life into the show for sure, and that's I think that's where a lot of myself. That's where I that's where I discovered it. Yeah, and I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I know it's pretty young. I mean, I was I was I was reading at a high level when I was a kid, and so I was reading like a Time Life Reader's Digest Mysteries Done Explained book that's for like college age students when I was like six or seven. Hmm. And I was just really interested in the unknown and the unexplained. And I guess I just came across some of the reruns. My mom used to watch the show. And I remember watching it with her. And then I would watch the reruns myself, like, late at night or, you know, in the after early in the morning or something before school. So, uh, so I remember that. And I also remember... The unexplained segments are my favorites when I was growing up, but then when I got older and I discovered some of the other ones, I, I like I like a lot of the other segments in the show, like fraud and murder and yeah. uh, the missing persons and stuff like that, and treasures and and things like that. And also, I just was really interested in the show Sightings as well. I don't know if you've seen that show. I, that, I, yeah, I saw a couple of those. That didn't really have the, anywhere near the same budget either, but it focused specifically on unexplained stuff, so that mm-hmm. was right up my alley. Yeah, I have another yeah. t- technical question. Um, Unsolved Mysteries, especially the early, the earlier ones, um, probably before it went over to CVS, they had, um, you know, I, I know, I know very little about, especially old. You know, you sh- said you shot on film. I, I only shoot on like digital DSLRs and stuff right. like that yeah. now. Um, it had a look to it. It had like this almost kind of uh, uh, like a soft, like a very soft, uh, gr- like a grainy kind of soft, almost um, kind of glow to it almost. All the interviews, segments and all that. How did you guys achieve that? Was that solely uh, from shooting on film as opposed to digital? Or Well, some of it was film, but um, also it's just, you know, the way the, everything's lit and the way it's shot because when it, it over time toward the end, it did go to, um, uh, some stuff being shot on digital and we were able to keep that look, um, going to some extent. But of course 
um, in the very beginning, there um, wasn't the budget, you know, until it was a hit. It didn't. So it kind of started out with limited resources and then it, it got better. And then it was, you know, in the top tier of just, you know, having a lot of support. And then as the audience dwindled and the and the, you know, the TV audience also was starting to dwindle in overall, then um they started to experiment with doing things digitally, and um, so it, it, some of it was film. Um, when it first started to go to digital, the quality of digital was not as good as film in terms of technically. So it was uh, more work to try and get that look out of out of digital. Nowadays, um, you know, it, the technology's got to the point where you know features are mostly done digitally. But back then it was it was early days of digital and, and uh, most of the shows were were done on film until the last couple of years, and film was very forgiving and very uh, gave you a lot of stuff to work with in the editing process to make it look like you wanted to look like. So that was part of it, and I think it was one of the advantages we had, um, you know, for some years where we were shooting film and the competitors were all trying to do it on video and the video quality of the video yeah wasn't just it technically wasn't that great yet yeah I, well, to me personally i think uh, i miss films that are shot on film and not on digital i think there's something there when something is shot on film it feels so much more cinematic to me digital has this whole sort of thing where the, especially with all this filtering stuff they're doing nowadays and artificial lighting and i, I it just i notice it and it drives me nuts and and i love how the old you know, episodes of the show were shot on film. They use real lights on the set. You know, if we're trying to make some shadows or whatever, we're trying to create a certain mood, we're going to do it with lights and actual physical lighting, not shoot it without that and then, or shoot it with the lighting and then try to add other lighting later with a computer that doesn't really match up with the lighting in the room. So, yeah, no, do it, doing it on the, doing it for real on the spot, you know, really looks the best because you can see how everything's interacting. Yeah. Um, I think now digital has advanced to the point where you can get that look. One of the things about film that was useful is that if you think about pixels, in in film, the equivalent would be a grain of film, silver, and every frame of film, the pixels were randomly redistributed every frame. And so it gave it a sort of organic quality. Yes, that um, is harder to achieve. But the thing is that digital's advanced to the point where I think it's crossing over where you might go to a feature and you wouldn't be able to tell if it was shot on digital or on film anymore sometimes. Um, yeah. But uh, so for us, that was a great advantage because at the time, if you shot video, it, it just was a bunch of square things nailed to a perch. There wasn't HD and, it, you know, it really wasn't great. So... Um, it, it was nice at that time to be able to shoot film. I, I mean, I, I have a, a HD camera, a 4K camera actually now, and, and I love it. But uh, when at that time, when things were switching over, I didn't love it because <laughs> yeah. the video wasn't very good yet. No. So, so uh, I know you've answered some of these before, but I just thought I'd kind of go over some of these again. Like, Do you have any more like funny or crazy stories to share from your time at Unsolved Mysteries or on other sets that you worked on? I remember we did this story um, in North Dakota in the winter, and um, I had a discussion with the production manager because we were going to fly to North Dakota, and, and this big cold front was coming through. So... On the Friday, we're talking about it. I'm saying, well, we have to re-grease the lenses because they'll be so cold that you won't be able to focus the lenses. It's just like trying to turn something that's stuck. And he's like, no, no, it's going to be fine. And while we were in flight, the temperature of the location we are going to shoot at, the temperature dropped 60 degrees in one minute, setting a record for the largest temperature <laughs> drop ever anywhere in the country. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and I remember... So, of course, you know, we would be doing these shots. I'd try to do a rack focus, and it would be like, well, I can only, it's going to take 20 seconds because the lens is, grease is so cold. <laughs> <laughs> and then at a certain moment, we'd, we'd, we had a motorhome. We'd frequently have a motorhome for out, you know, where there isn't much to sort of headquarter in. 
and I was stumping around doing something out in the snow, and it was five below zero, I think. And sometimes you'd be setting up for a good part of the day for a big scene. And I looked around. I was like, nobody was outside anymore. I was like, what's going on? They were all in the motorhome getting warm because <laughs> it was <laughs> cold out. And then I had a shot to do. Um, John Cosgrove, who was the show director and one of the produ- and you know the producer, along with Terry, he was very much um, the person the style of that show came from and so one of his uh, signature shots was this kind of you know high overhead shot of everything and those are difficult because when as soon as you do that you see everything you got to get everything swept away out of the way and so i was up in a uh bucket it was a like a telephone company one of those kind of buckets for working on the power lines with the camera Cherry picker yeah, like a cherry picker, and the, and, the, and the tripod barely fit in the bucket. And it was five below zero, and so I tilted down, and I was the shot was getting set up, and I'm looking at it, and I breathed out, and the wind blew it back and froze my eye shut. <laughs> I didn't see anything from it. I was just like, oh, yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> there were a lot of those. That is crazy. It was a great, crazy. great adventure. I mean, it really, every every story was you know, a, a different adventure in some form. And even the, sometimes we do a story where we all are like, we think the story's bogus. <laughs> but something interesting would always happen. And so, you, you, even if you think, okay, I know everything about this story, you didn't. And so it was always a, a great adventure. Yeah, we kind of figured that we kind of found that out ourselves with the Ghost Boy segment because we we really liked that, and then we did some research on our own, and then we're like, the this lady wrote a book, and it's like ridiculous, and it's over the top, like a ghost uh, car that like ran over people and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, mo- okay. the, the mother of the son who <laughs> Google, this Google car, yeah, <laughs> so bad. It's it's like she was trying to you know like cash in on her son's kind of ghostly experiences and anytime i see anything like that it it kind of sullies the story a little bit to me because it's like okay so there's financial gain in this so maybe you Mm. know the the bullshit meter kind of goes off in my mind a little bit ghost Um, car showing up in a in a graveyard (laughs) speaking of bullshit i see i saw on your resume you worked on uh penn and teller uh bullshit for showtime Oh yeah, it's also great fun that show. Oh, I that like sh- that show. That I've show been watching that fantastic. show lately. I loved that show. Yeah, that show. Um, when it ended, it was actually doing had its best ratings ever. <laughs> but whatever. That's showtime yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Penn and Teller. Those guys were really interesting guys, smart guys. Those are good shows. That frequently shocked me. What they, you know, the things they demolished. Like oh. <laughs> <laughs> they got. I think they. When they did, they did one on um, Mother Teresa, and they got. I mean, I think they got death threats. It was just. Uh, yeah, I remember that one. So. Yeah, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that would happen, you know, with that type of you know, uh, fan base. Um, so, we talked about a lot of the things that you know were good, you know, uh, set, you know, fun experiences on the set and things like that, like. Do you know of any sort of shoots that were bad, like the worst shoots ever or something like that? Not just from Unsolved Mysteries. It can be anything. Well, uh, in terms of Unsolved Mysteries, the shoots that I remember were bad were almost always weather. Yeah. Because it was the thing that we couldn't control. And we we believed that there was some weird kind of subconscious tendency – for us to get sent out to do a summer story in the winter or a winter story in the summer. <laughs> so I remember once we had this story that was about this guy who we went out on a boat with his wife and the boat sank and his wife died and he didn't. And there was a lot of oh yeah that speculation one. that maybe he'd killed her. Um, and so we went to do the recreation and it was supposed to be summer, and we were on Lake Superior. So, uh, 
producer found a little bay of Lake Superior that was calmer and that was more controllable. But it was still November, and we were shooting at night, and the last night we were shooting, um, so it's summer, so the actors are supposed to be, like, in the water, happy, it's fun, and, you know, it's they're, they're freezing. and <laughs> <laughs> You have to have a really good actress, right? And there. we're shooting all night, and we have this, you know, 12,000-watt light up hanging out over the water on a crane, and... Um, you know, so it's, and divers in the water, so it's challenging, and and you know, safety is important. And at a certain moment, this huge gust of wind comes up and basically breaks the light off the mount. And of course, happily, our people had put safety chains on everything, so it's hanging by the safety chain. And hail is fl- it's hailing, and the hail is floating on the water, so that it looks like styrofoam beads. And the director said, okay, we're done. We're going to finish the rest of this in L.A. (laughs) 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 But, you know, sometimes it was tricky because you're at the edge of what can be done. And um, because, you know, no matter how many resources you have, it's there's still an end to it. And there's always stuff that's difficult. But, you know, we had great support and people are always good and safe and careful. So I've been on some shows that weren't so safe feeling but i won't name them <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember that segment and i was like he didn't do it and then like the, the update and i'm like oh he did do it okay all mm-hmm. right well that happens of, sometimes the scary time. ones were the people uh, well, we had one i mean i remember we we shot one in it was early on too i think it might have been part of the unabomber we were shooting in seattle and it never stopped raining and so we ended up using the camera truck as a sort of dolly and just so that we could keep things dry and, and just like put the camera truck wherever we needed to be to shoot it. But it was still, you know, never stops raining. And so it's challenging, but, but also I think some of the scariest ones were people where we did this one with this guy and I, I can't remember his name, but he had, his wife had disappeared and, um, the police really strongly believed that he killed her, but they couldn't come up with a body and they couldn't get anything that proved anything on him. And we went to interview this guy and he was very dicey about whether he was going to do the interview right up to the end. And John Cosco of the overall show director, who wasn't, he wasn't always on location, but he, he, he was on this one. He spent an hour convincing this guy to do the interview. And then we did the interview, and we were all totally convinced that he had killed her. And it was just like, where's the body? So we figured, you know what? I bet the body's here in this yard somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And this guy looked like the mole man. He looked like a Picasso painting. You know, his face had been put together from 10 different things. And we were just kind of, we were kind of freaked out. We were like, well, is he going to kill us? You know, (laughs) what's going to happen here? It was spooky. I think I know which case you're talking about. That was the case of Monica Rizzo, right? Um, she was a music teacher, and he said he didn't like music. And in the end, they found her body, and they and the and the cops had the cops. They were so sure, like you know, her body's here somewhere. And they had dug up the yard and dug up the. He had like given them sort of false leads of where to make them think where she was. And in the end, she was in the comp. Her they found her skull in the compost pile. Oh, geez. So it was just like, hmm. Uh, and you were right there, you know, technically. So so sometimes you we're kind of like, maybe we're a little too close to this story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably scarier than any sort of ghost thing or anything like that. That's for sure. Yeah. So right. I got one uh, last question here. Uh, yeah. Do you think you left a personal stamp on the show Unsolved Mysteries? And if sh- and if so, what do you think it is? Oh, that's a really interesting question. <sighs> my my instinct is to say, not really. I think I, um, I mean, yeah, we, we did sort of develop some new things along the way, but I think the key was that we we just managed to work all together to make it this relatively seamless thing, and and so. I don't think, I think um, maybe my, my thing would be I, I love to shoot handheld. So I think I 
even sort of subconsciously naturally would tend toward pushing the show more toward handheld stuff. So if there was any contribution, that was probably it in terms of, you know, pushing the show in a direction. But I probably didn't do it consciously as much as it's just sort of my my natural um, thing that I'm comfortable and good at. So. All right. Well, we uh, we really want to thank you for your time, Kevin, uh, and appreciate well, you yes. reaching out. I mean, you you were a part of um, you know a, a fantastic show that not only was entertaining but also uh, served a a purpose to better society. And it's rare that shows like that come out, and you were a piece of of that. So you know, we are very very appreciative that you took the time to talk to us and answer some of these behind the scene questions that. And this is honestly like the best Christmas present I could get to talk to somebody <laughs> who worked on the show. You know, that's been like a dream of mine. So thank you. Well, and, I was uh, I, I was so entertained by your piece, and um, so it was great. I thought oh, this is really cool. <laughs> cool, yeah, that's that's great. Um, it's great that there's such a base out there of people who are you know still uh, you know loyal to the show. Hopefully, it can get some new stuff going. We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. The new uh, Amazon Prime. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I read that uh, they are working on adding new updates to uh, the cases. So uh, we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm, they said sometime in 2017. So. All right, Kevin. Well, it was great talking to you, man. We really yes. appreciate it. Okay. All right, was man. It was fun. Have a yeah, good rest. Sure was. Have a good rest of your day, and I'll have e- a I'll, I'll email, have a happy holiday. Yes, I'll email you the uh, episode whenever we get it out. If you want to take it, uh, take a listen to it. Okay, great, thanks. And I'll I'll poke around and see if any, any of the people I know are want to talk to you. Excellent. Yeah, please do. Thank you. Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.